Chapter Twelve of Empire by Clifford Simak. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Scorio snarled at the four men. I want you to get this thing done right. I don't want bungling, understand? The bulky, flat-faced man with a scar across his cheek shuffled uneasily. We went over it a dozen times. We know just what to do. He grinned at Scorio, but the grin was lopsided, more like a sneering grimace. At one time the man had failed to sidestep a heat-ray, and it had left a neat red line drawn across the right cheek, nipped the end of the ear. "'All right, Pete,' said Scorio, glaring at the man. "'Your job is the heavy work, so just keep your mind on it. You got the two heaters and the kit?' Pete grinned lopsidedly again. "'Yeah, my own kit. I can open anything hollow with this rig.' "'You got a real job tonight,' snarled Scorio. Two doors and a safe. Sure you can do it?' "'Just leave it to me,' Pete growled. "'Chizzy, you're the pilot,' Scorio snapped. "'Know the coordinates?' "'Sure,' said Chizzy. "'Know them by heart. Do it with my eyes shut. Keep your eyes open. We can't have anything go wrong. This is too important. You sweep in at top speed and land on the roof. Stand by the controls and keep a hand on the big heater just in case of trouble. Pete, Max and Reg will go to the lock door. Reg will stay there with a the buzzer and three drums of ammunition.' He whirled on Reg. "'You got that ammunition?' Reg nodded emphatically. Four drums of it,' he said. "'One solid round in a gun, another drum a solid and two explosive.' "'There's a thousand rounds in each drum,' snapped Scorio. "'But they only last a minute, so do your firing in bursts.' "'I ain't handled buzzers all these years without knowing something about them.' "'There's only two men there,' said Scorio. "'And they'll probably be asleep. Come down with your motor dead.' The lab roof is thick, and the plane landing on those thick tires won't wake them. But be on your guard all the time. Pete and Max will go through the lock door into the laboratory and open the safe. Dump all the papers and money and whatever else you find into the bags, and then get out fast. Hop into the plane and take off. When you clear of the building, turn the heaters on it. I want it melted down, and the men and stuff inside with it. Don't leave even a button unmelted. Get it? Sure, Chief, said Pete. He dusted his hands together. Now get going. Beat it. The four men turned and filed out of the room, through the door leading to the tumble-down warehouse where was hidden the streamlined metal ship. Swiftly they entered it, and the ship nosed gently upward, blasting out through a broken, frameless skylight, climbing up and up, over the gleaming spires of New York. Back in the room, hung with steel-cloth curtains, alone, Scorio lit a cigarette and chuckled. "'They won't have a chance,' he said. "'Who won't?' asked a tiny voice from almost in front of him. "'Why, Manning and Pete!' said Scorio, and then stopped. The fire of the match burned down and scorched his fingers. He dropped it. "'Who asked that?' he roared. "'I did,' said the piping voice. Scorio looked down. A three-inch man sat on a matchbox on the desk. "'Who are you?' the gangster shouted. "'I'm Manning,' said the little man. "'The one you're going to kill. Don't you remember?' "'Damn you!' shrieked Scorio. His hand flipped open a drawer and pulled out a flame-pistol. The muzzle of the pistol came up and blasted. Screwed down to its smallest diameter, the gun's aim was deadly. A straight lance of flame, no bigger than a pencil, streamed out, engulfed the little man, bored into the table-top. The box of matches exploded with a gush of red that was a dull flash against the blue blaze of the gun. But the figure of the man stood within the flame, stood there and waved an arm at Scorio. The piping voice came out of the heart of the gun's breath. "'Maybe I'd better get a bit smaller. Make me harder to hit. More sport that way.' Scorio's finger lifted from the trigger. The flame snapped off. 
Laboriously climbing out of the still-smoking furrow left in the oaken tabletop was Greg Manning, not more than an inch tall now. The gangster laid the gun on the table, stepped closer, warily. With the palm of a mighty hand, he swatted viciously at the little figure. "'I got you now!' But the figure seemed to ooze upright between his fingers, calmly stepped off his hand onto the table. And now it began to grow. Watching it, Scorio saw it grow to six inches, and there it stopped. "'What are you?' he breathed. "'I told you,' said the little image. "'I'm Gregory Manning, the man you set out to kill. I've watched every move you've made, and known everything you planned.' "'But that isn't possible,' protested Scorio. "'You're out of the West Coast. This is some trick. I'm just seeing things.' "'You aren't seeing anything imaginary. I'm really here, in this room with you. I could lift my finger and kill you if I wished, and maybe I should.' Scorio stepped back a pace. "'But I'm not going to,' said Manning. "'I have something better saved for you, something more appropriate.' "'You can't touch me!' "'Look,' said Manning sternly. He pointed his finger at a chair. It suddenly grew cloudy, became a wisp of trailing smoke, was gone. The gangster backed away, his eyes glued to the spot where the chair had vanished. "'Look here,' piped the little voice. Scorio jerked his head round and looked. The chair was in Manning's hand, a tiny chair, but the very one that had disappeared from the room a moment before. "'Watch out!' warned Manning, and heaved the chair. The tiny chair seemed to float in the air, then with a rush it gathered speed, grew larger, in a split second it was a full-size chair, and it was hurtling straight at the gangster's head. With a strangled cry, Scorio threw up his arms. The chair crashed into him, bowled him over. "'And now do you believe me?' demanded Manning. Scrambling to his feet, Scorio gibbered madly, for the six-inch figure was growing. He became as large as the average man, and then much larger. His head cleared the high ceiling by scant inches. His mighty hands reached out for the gangster. Scorio scuttled away on hands and knees, yelping with terror. Powerful hands seemed to seize and lift him. The room was blotted out. The earth was gone. He was in a place where there was nothing. No light, no heat, no gravitation. For one searing, blasting second he seemed to be floating in strangely suspended animation. Then, with a jolt, he became aware of new surroundings. He blinked his eyes and looked around. He was in a great laboratory that hummed faintly, with a suggestion of terrific power that smelled of ozone and seemed filled with gigantic apparatus. Two men stood in front of him. He staggered back. "'Manning!' he gasped. Manning grinned savagely at him. "'Sit down, Scorio. You won't have long to wait. Your boys will be along any minute now.' Chizzy crouched over the controls, his eyes on the navigation chart. Only the thin screech of parted air disturbed the silence of the ship. The high scream and the slow, precise snack-snack of cards, as Reg and Max played a game of double solitaire with a cold, emotionless precision. The plane was near the stratosphere, well off the travelled airlanes. It was running without lights, but the cabin bulbs were on, carefully shielded. Pete sat in the co-pilot's chair beside Chizzy. His blank, expressionless eyes stared straight ahead. "'I don't like this job,' he complained. "'Why not?' said Chizzy. "'Page and Manning aren't the kind of guys a fellow I'd ought to be fooling around with. They ain't just chumps. You fool with characters like them and you got trouble.' Chizzy growled at him disgustedly, bent to his controls. Straight ahead was a thin sliver of a dying moon that gave barely enough illumination to make out the great rugged blocks of the mountains, like dark, shadowy brushstrokes on a newly started canvas. Pete shuddered. There was something about the thin, watery moonlight, and those brushstroke hills. "'It seems funny up here,' he said. "'Hell!' growled Chizzy. "'You're going soft in your old age.' 
Silence fell between the two. The snack-snack of the cards continued. "'You ain't got nothing to be afraid of,' Chizzy told Pete. "'This tub is the safest place in the world. She's overpowered a dozen times. She can outfly anything in the air. She's ray-proof and bullet-proof and bomb-proof. Nothing can hurt us.' But Pete wasn't listening. "'That moonlight makes a man see things. Funny things. Like pictures in the night.' "'You're balmy,' declared Chizzy. Pete started out of his seat. His voice gurgled in his throat. He pointed with a shaking finger out into the night. "'Look!' he yelled. "'Look!' Chizzy rose out of his seat and froze in sudden terror. Straight ahead of the ship, etched in silvery moonlines against the background of the star-sprinkled sky, was a grim and terrible face. It was as big and hard as a mountain. End of chapter 12